Hey friends, Nina here. You might be hearing some unusual ads before an episode of Already Gone. Apologies, I'm doing my best to weed out political advertisements right now, but sometimes our ad provider is tricked by the advertiser and these ads slip through, so please bear with us as we get through another hectic election season. As always, I do appreciate you listening. And now, on with the show. Nuevo, Michigan is a small town in the eastern central part of the Lower Peninsula. It sits at the south end of the Manistee National Forest and at the far northern end of what one might call the Muskegon or Grand Rapids suburbs. Tourists come to the area for the Muskegon River in the summer, and in the winter there is hunting and snowmobiling. With a population of about 2,000 people, it's easy to know your neighbors and keep tabs on what's happening in the community, if you're so inclined. This is where Shannon Siders grew up. Her parents, Robert and Mary, divorced when she was in kindergarten. Shannon lived with her dad, which, I can tell you, was a pretty unusual setup in the 1970s. Divorced parents were still somewhat rare, and if they did split, well, the kids almost always went to live with their mom. Her mother, Mary, was Native American. She is from the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa, making Shannon part Native American, but I can't tell you Shannon's status with the tribe. Mary Siders, she passed away in 2018, and on findagrave.com, she is listed as a, quote, elder of the Sioux tribe Chippewa Indians. After the split, Robert moved with Shannon into his grandmother's house, a modest home in Nuego, and that's where she grew up. Shannon was the only child of both parents. She was loved and doted on by her dad and grandmother. They described her as smart, witty, and fun to be around. In 1989, Shannon was a senior at Nuego High School. The petite brunette wasn't happy with school and chose to drop out. She was also getting serious with her boyfriend, 19-year-old Brian. Well, her dad hoped she was getting serious with Brian, because Bob Siders liked him and hoped that the two teens would eventually get married. Listeners, Shannon isn't going to get married. She's not going to survive the summer. Come with me to a July night in 1989 when 18-year-old Shannon goes out with people she thought were her friends, only to vanish, leading to a decades-long investigation into her murder. I started creating Already Gone in 2016, and one of the lessons I've learned over the years is that there are the things you know, and then there are the things you can prove in court. And I think investigators knew a lot of things about Shannon's murder, but it took almost 25 years to prove these things within the criminal justice system. And one of the things that investigators knew was that on July 17, 1989, Shannon, along with her friend, 17-year-old Paul Jones, and Paul's girlfriend, Carol, they went to the river to go swimming. They hung out well into the evening, with Shannon being dropped off at home around 9 p.m., 
which gave her time to see her dad, Robert, before he left for his overnight shift at work. Once she was back at home, she placed a call to friends looking for a ride to a party happening that night. She started by calling Paul and Carol, but Carol said, hey, I can't help, I've got a babysit, and Paul was supposed to be hanging out with Carol. It was just before 10 o'clock that Shannon talked to her boyfriend, Brian. The pair chatted for a bit, and Brian would later tell investigators that the conversation was normal. Nothing concerning came up. Shannon did mention that she planned to go out with friends that evening. But she would not be seeing Brian. He was out of state. He'd traveled to Ohio to work a temporary job and earn some money. Brian had no way of knowing that this job, it would not only give him money, it would provide a much-needed, rock-solid alibi for the murder of his girlfriend. It was about quarter or twenty after ten when Shannon's dad gave her a hug and bid her farewell. Bob Siders worked the third shift at the Pepsi bottling plant in Grand Rapids, so he'd be gone all night. But Shannon and her new dog, a puppy, they'd be home. This was their usual routine. He worked the midnight shift and didn't think much about leaving Shannon home or what she might get up to while he was gone, because at 18, Shannon was, after all, an adult. Around 11 p.m., Shannon met up with a group of eight friends at a convenience store in Nuego. This group included Paul Jones, the boyfriend of Carol. This was the couple that she'd been out swimming with earlier. Carol wasn't there. She was still babysitting, so it was Paul. Uh, Two guys, Darren and William, and there were some other kids present as well. Again, a total of eight kids traveling in three cars. Shannon was in a car with Paul Jones and Paul's older brother, Matthew, age 19. This group drove around the backwoods surrounding Nuego until the small hours. It was around two in the morning when they met up again at a gas station. Once there, they hung out for a few minutes, maybe half an hour. And at this point, both Darren and William They noted that Shannon was in the front seat of Paul's car, sitting between Paul and his brother. And when the three vehicles left the gas station, Paul's car was at the end of the line of cars, and Darren noticed that he turned off, breaking away from the group. Darren thought that the vehicle turned east on Heslake Road, but he couldn't say for sure. After that, no one would ever see Shannon Siders alive again. The other two cars would turn into a Nuego area grocery store parking lot and hang out for a couple of hours. It was about 4 a.m. when Paul and Matthew pulled into the lot. Shannon was not with them. When the brothers arrived, someone asked where Shannon was, and Paul said they'd dropped her off at home. Darren would later tell investigators that the brothers were wearing the same clothes they'd had on earlier. Their clothing was not stained or dirty, and both men appeared calm and relaxed. Nothing in their appearance or behavior raised red flags for the group. In this group, now seven kids, would be together until dawn, driving around, drinking beer, and goofing off. At one point, William, the driver of one of the cars, he hit his brakes and Paul's car slammed into his vehicle. William's car didn't receive much damage, but Paul's car had some front-end damage from the collision. The partying, which had lasted all night long, was coming to an end as the sun came up. And not long after the group of friends broke up and headed home, Robert Siders returned home from work. He entered the house to find Shannon's puppy running loose. According to an interview, he said, quote, The dog had messed all over the house. I knew Shannon wasn't there. She would have cleaned that up. 
and her bed hadn't been slept in. The only thing missing was her purse and the clothing on her back. Before he turned in, he wanted to find out where Shannon was. He started calling her friends because, well, it wasn't uncommon for Shannon to sleep over at someone else's house. But he couldn't find her. He figured she would be home soon, and he went to sleep. When he woke up later in the day and there was no sign of his daughter, he became worried and placed a call to police. Now, sources disagree on when she was reported missing. Robert says he reported her missing on the 18th. Other sources say he didn't report her missing until later in the week. And I'm wondering, you know, it's 1989, and it could have been because of the agency. In the 80s, refusing to take a missing persons report until someone is missing 24 or even 48 hours, that was pretty normal. And maybe Robert did call the police on the 18th, only to have them not file an official report until a day or two later. Because Shannon was, after all, 18 years old. She's legally an adult. And we need to bring up that Shannon had been in some legal trouble. Nothing serious. I think she had a shoplifting bust. But it's possible that the police assumed that Shannon was avoiding her dad or was holed up with her boyfriend somewhere for a few days. Whatever the cause, they weren't worried and they did not start looking for her right away. Robert, on the other hand, he started looking for her immediately. And with Shannon missing, small-town Nuego lit up with chatter and speculation. One of the tips that came out was that Shannon and her dad were having issues. This information had investigators thinking that Shannon was alive and well and was in hiding, avoiding her dad. And police weren't going to spend time and resources searching for a kid who was hiding out from a potentially abusive parent. Robert Siders was frustrated and he was frightened by the disappearance of his daughter. So he took up the mantle and he searched for Shannon by himself. He printed flyers, he talked with her friends, he posted a reward for Shannon's return, whatever that return might look like. He just wanted her back. And Robert pounded the pavement and spent what little money he had trying to find his daughter. But police in Nuego, they didn't think that Shannon was missing or that she was in danger. So Robert Siders, he was on his own. July turned to August with no sign of Shannon. Robert continued to juggle work and searching for his only child, and the strain on him was evident. The already slim man became downright haggard as he continued to look for his daughter, and he would talk to anyone who might know anything about what had happened. She'd been missing more than a month when September arrived, and with it came some clues as to what had become of Shannon. Shannon's identification card and her father's credit card were found near a fire pit in the Manistee National Forest. Also found nearby were a pair of men's blue jeans, a beach towel, and a pair of olive drab pants that could be for men or women. Robert Siders looked at these items and determined that they did not belong to his daughter. Now, Shannon's been missing six weeks at this point, and law enforcement suddenly realizes that Shannon Siders wasn't hiding, and she hadn't run off. Something serious and likely deadly had happened to her. It would be another six weeks before Shannon's remains were found by a 31-year-old man who was out bow hunting in the Manistee National Forest. She was located off M82 and Thornapple Road, about three miles from Nuego. The area where she was recovered was a known hangout for local youths. 
a place where kids could go party far from the prying eyes of their parents and law enforcement. And listeners, I want to caution you that this next bit is distressing, so if you are sensitive, particularly to sexual assault, you may wish to jump ahead about 30 seconds. According to a court document, her body was found behind some pine trees. The location made it hard to spot. It appeared that she'd been dragged there after she was dead. According to Cincinnati.com, Shannon was found with her legs spread apart, her underwear down, and the bones of her hand were clutching a necklace. Her shirt and bra were pushed up around her shoulders. Shannon's pants, they were never recovered. Investigators found a pocket knife near Shannon's body, and her remains were so decomposed that dental records were needed to confirm that the body belonged to Shannon. The location of her body, near a known hangout spot, had police thinking that it was a peer, maybe someone Shannon knew who was responsible for her murder. They started talking with her friends, neighbors, and former classmates, anyone who might have information about Shannon's case. Her remains were collected and taken for autopsy. Shannon's cause of death was listed as blunt force trauma. There were blunt force injuries to the back and sides of her head. They listed out her many injuries, which included a broken shoulder, broken ribs, a broken nose, and a skull fracture. There was enough left of her remains to determine that she'd sustained two black eyes prior to death, as well as bruises on her hands and breasts. She also had defensive wounds on her hands. Whatever happened that night in the forest, Shannon Siders fought for her life against her attackers. And while a rape kit could not be performed, the way the body was found made it very likely that she was sexually assaulted. It was noted in the file that her remains were mutilated post-mortem with a, quote, very sharp knife. Now, listeners, you know that I don't often become frustrated with law enforcement. <laughs> but this case, this case is maddening. Because first, they wouldn't investigate her as a missing person, and they let weeks pass without doing a proper search or proper interviews of the people she was with the night she died. And when her body is found, just yards away from a popular youth hangout in the woods, instead of going to her friends and seeing who can tell them what, investigators focus on her father. They thought maybe he put her body there and posed it to throw attention away from himself. But we know that Robert Siders was at work the night his daughter vanished. We know that he raised her on his own from when she was very young, and we know that he tried to file a report the same day that she vanished, but this is who they focused their attention on. Now, police did hear from Shannon's mother, Mary, that Robert had a history of abusive behavior. I believe that the abusive behavior Mary alleged was between herself and Robert, the man that she would divorce when Shannon was just five years old. As far as I know, there is no evidence that Robert and Shannon had an abusive relationship. Normal father-daughter tension? Pushback? Rebellion? Sure. We've all been there. But abuse? No. Police did interview hundreds of people in the case, and not one of them had seen Shannon after the small hours of July 18, 1989. The story that they heard time and again was that the last people Shannon was seen with were brothers Paul and Matthew Jones. Something to keep in mind is that the kids that she was with, and I say kids, I mean teenagers and young adults, 
But these kids that she was with the night of the 17th and 18th, they did not want to talk with investigators because they didn't want to explain that they'd been out all night driving around while drinking beer and engaging in other illegal and less savory pursuits. The story offered by the Jones brothers, they said they'd taken Shannon to her house during the time the group had split up that night. They told police they'd dropped Shannon back at her house around midnight and then hadn't seen her again after that. But the group she was with, remember William, Darren, and the other kids? They saw Shannon with the brothers as late as 2 a.m. What could explain this discrepancy? Apparently, no one looked too closely at it because it appears to have been disregarded. Again, police are looking at Shannon's father. He presented them with his time card from Pepsi-Cola, as well as co-workers who vouched that he had not left the premises. Robert even volunteered to take a polygraph, which he passed. As we discussed earlier, Nuego is a small town, and word spread that Robert Siders was a suspect in the death of his daughter. This made his life difficult, more difficult. Not only had someone brutally assaulted and killed his only child, but his neighbors and his community, they looked at him like he was a suspect. Listeners, let's take a look at what the Jones brothers, mainly Paul Jones, had to say in the weeks and years following Shannon's murder. One of his girlfriends, and this wasn't Carol, the one he was with the day that Shannon was killed, she would tell police that Paul had varying stories about why his car was damaged. Remember, he'd rear-ended one of his friend's vehicles the night Shannon disappeared. First, he told her that he'd been in a fight and someone hit the car with a baseball bat. Then, he said he hit a deer. And she called him out on his changing stories, and, according to court documents, he said, quote, Maybe I ran Shannon down with it. According to a story in the Detroit Free Press, during the late summer of 1989, Paul Jones said things like, Just face it, she's dead. And, quote, The bitch got what she deserved. Again, looking at court documents, Paul said that when he and his older brother Matthew dropped Shannon off at home around midnight, Shannon said, quote, My dad's home. He's going to be upset. I'm out too late. Listeners, we know that her dad worked third shift and he'd left for work around 10.30 on the 17th. Shannon would never have said what Paul was reporting. Fast forward to the summer of 1990 and the Jones brothers are at a party where one of them said, quote, they can't pin it on us. They had us and they let us go. While at another party, and by party, I don't mean the cake and punch in someone's backyard kind of party. I'm picturing one of those out-of-the-way spots in the woods where teens like to hang out and drink, you know, away from their parents and other authority figures. While at one of these parties, Paul revealed that the three of them, Paul, his brother, and Shannon, drove to a known party spot in the woods hoping to meet up with friends. When they arrived, Shannon got out of the car and decided that she was leaving. So Paul struck her with his vehicle, knocking her to the ground. Then the brothers grabbed a log or something and started hitting her with it before they took turns sexually assaulting Shannon Siders. Matthew, who was listening to Paul relay this story, was nodding and agreeing with his younger brother's account of the evening. And remember how earlier I said there are the things you know, and then there are the things you can prove in court? We just went over many of the things that you know, but you can't prove in court. Talking about a crime, 
is not the same as proof that you were involved in it. Investigators knew that Shannon was last seen alive with the Jones brothers, but it wasn't enough to make an arrest, not in the early 90s. And as her case went cold, Robert Siders again used his own money to work on the case. He paid for a billboard on M37, the main road leading to Nuego. It said, quote, Who killed Shannon Siders? And then it had the number for the Michigan State Police. Shannon's case was set aside for more than a decade. It wasn't until 2004 that the Jones brothers again appeared on the radar of law enforcement. It was late June when Paul Jones was arrested for home invasion in Muskegon and Nuego counties. He pled guilty and was sentenced to prison. He would be released in late 2005 or early 2006. Since he didn't learn his lesson, in the summer of 2006, Paul Jones is again picked up for home invasion, this time in Kent County, and he's caught with a taser. This time he will serve about five years in prison. And in 2011, a cold case task force is assembled. Michigan State Police, the Nuego County Sheriff, and other agencies get together to review unsolved cases. Shannon's case, a violent assault and murder, now more than 20 years old, it sits at the top of the pile. The cold case team starts by tracking down all of their witnesses in the Cider case. In doing so, they also find new witnesses people who weren't available at the time of the murder. Remember, Shannon should have completed high school in 1989, so many of her peers left home that fall, headed to college or to start their adult lives away from Nuego. Investigators also sorted through, literally, thousands of documents on the case. They had a new witness, Shannon's friend Julia, While the Jones boys told police that they dropped Shannon off at home around midnight, Julia, who was spending the night near Shannon's house, she had popped by her place several times that night between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. looking for Shannon, but the house was empty except for Shannon's dog. Another new set of witnesses came forward, Jenny Corrigan and Dean Robinson. In 1989, Jenny was only 14 years old and Dean was 19, but the two had been out all night looking for Dean's girlfriend. It was around 4 or 5 a.m. when they turned down a narrow two-track road, headed for a party spot. When they arrived, they saw a car parked, so they pulled up and Dean told Jenny to stay in the car. When he exits the vehicle, he talks briefly with a man located near the parked car and that man identifies himself as Paul. When Dean sees someone else in the vehicle, Paul says, that's my brother. Dean does not like what he's seeing here. He gets a bad vibe from the pair, so he returns to his car, and he and Jenny drive away to continue looking for Dean's girlfriend. Sometime later, and accounts differ here, it could have been 30 minutes later, or it could have been up to two hours later, Dean and Jenny come across Paul and his brother at another location. This time, Dean sees a woman on the ground near Paul, and Dean thinks that the woman must be wearing a dress because he can see her bare legs. Dean walks closer and notices a second man standing outside the car. He takes another look at the woman on the ground and he sees blood on her face. He's thinking that there's been an accident and that he should offer assistance. As he gets close to Paul, Dean slips and falls to his knees. 
Paul walks up and kicks Dean in the face, knocking him backward to the ground. Before Dean can get up, the other man, who is likely Paul's brother, Matthew Jones, he approaches Dean with a tool, perhaps a hammer or hatchet, in his hand. Jenny does not like what she's seeing, so she leans over and hits the car horn. The loud noise startled everyone, and the two men return to the woman on the ground. They get her by the arms and quickly drag her away. Dean returns to his car, and he and Jenny watch as Paul and the other man get into Paul's vehicle. The two cars leave, but they are headed in different directions. As the sun rises over Nuego, Dean is worried about what people will think. Him, a 19-year-old, spending the night with a 14-year-old girl? He tells Jenny that she can't tell anyone about that night. And when she asks him about the two men and the woman in the woods, he says, I think it was a drunk driving accident and the men were helping her. And listeners, Dean is not the witness you'd hope that he would be. He admits that on that evening he'd consumed LSD and purchased cocaine, cocaine that he can't remember if he'd used or not. And Jenny Corrigan? She was just a kid when she witnessed part of the attack on Shannon Siders, and she said that she never connected the two cases, not until 2011, 21 years later, when a friend told her about Shannon's unsolved murder and shared the location where Shannon's remains were recovered. Jenny remembered enough about the long night with Dean Robinson to know that this was about the same location where they saw what she'd always thought was a drunk driving incident. And in 2011, Dean Robinson, he's in prison. He has no interest in helping police or prosecutors. Because Dean Robinson is a lot of things, but he's no snitch. Finally, someone sits down with Dean, and they talk with him about his father, who is struggling with a cancer diagnosis. And then they remind him that Robert Siders, he has waited more than 20 years for answers in the death of his only child. Doesn't Dean want to help a suffering father to provide this man with answers and comfort after so many years? Dean agrees, and he tells them what he recalls from that long-ago summer night. But talking to a detective about what he remembers and agreeing to testify to it in court are different things, and Robinson is hesitant. But eventually, he's persuaded to take the stand in this case. At the preliminary exam... Dean Robinson, dressed in orange prison gear and wearing shackles, he tells the court what he remembers. Shannon's body is exhumed on July 26, 2012, more than 23 years after her murder. After a second examination is completed, Shannon is laid to rest a second time. Her family holds a Native American funeral with songs and rituals that are linked to her heritage. Shannon's mother, Mary, she put a medicine pouch in Shannon's grave. According to the Muskegon Chronicle, it would be with Shannon on her journey in the afterlife. Meanwhile, the task force continues to look at the Jones brothers, and they find a note in the file from Paul's 2006 invasion which caught their attention. You see, Paul was found with not just a stun gun, but he had a rape kit that included duct tape, condoms, and Vaseline. It will take a while, but on June 24, 2014, Paul and Matthew Jones are arrested and charged with first-degree premeditated murder. With the brothers in custody, another witness comes forward. This time, it's their uncle, 
a man by the name of Ronald King. He says that he called police in 1989 because the boys had confessed to him what they'd done. King will tell investigators that the position of Matthew and Paul was that had Siders given them, quote, what they wanted, then they would not have killed her. The preliminary hearing is held in September of 2014. Bob Siders takes the stand and becomes emotional when talking about Shannon's remains being recovered. Visiting Judge Brad Lambricks presides over the hearing. Shannon's father and other supporters attend each day dressed in pink memorial t-shirts bearing Shannon's picture. Bob Sider's shirt is more simple. On the front, it says Justice for Shannon, and on the back, it says Father. Also taking the stand is Darren, one of the boys out with Shannon and the others that night. He'd been reluctant to cooperate with police in 1989, and his testimony at the hearing explains that. On the night that Shannon was murdered, he'd been drinking beer, smoking marijuana, and he'd taken LSD. The three days of testimony is enough to bind the brothers over for trial and the murder of Shannon Siders. The Jones brothers are not offered bond. Their trial begins in the spring of 2015. The brothers are tried together with two juries. The case is prosecuted by the state's attorney general and the Nuego County prosecutor, Robert Springstead. The prosecution put forth that in the early hours of July 18, 1989, the brothers and Shannon drove around drinking and partying for hours. The two young men took Shannon to a secluded location and made sexual advances towards her. Advances that Shannon rejected. And when she tried to get away from them, they struck her with their car, then took turns beating and assaulting her, an attack that led to her death. The defense counters that there is no physical evidence linking Paul or Matthew to the murder. Then they attack Dean Robinson's testimony, saying that he fabricated a story to get himself released from prison. In fact, Dean Robinson was in prison in part for committing perjury, but now we are supposed to find him truthful. Their clients, Paul and Matthew, will not take the stand. On May 8, 2015, Matthew Jones, now 45 years old, is found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Paul Jones, now 43 years old, is found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to serve 30 to 75 years for his part in Shannon's death. Both brothers appealed their conviction on the grounds that some evidence should not have been admitted because it was hearsay, and that there was not enough evidence to convict but in February of 2017, their appeals were denied. As of this writing, Matthew Jones resides at the Kinross Correctional Facility in northern Michigan. Paul Jones is at the Thumb Correctional Facility in Lapeer, Michigan. His earliest release date is January 2039, when he is 66 years old. In January of 2016, three members of the Michigan State Police Cold Case Squad that solved this case received the meritorious award. They are Detective Sergeant John Fournier, Detective Sergeant Scott Rios, and Detective Sergeant Michael Stevens. The Already Gone podcast releases new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. This episode was researched by Haley Gray, with audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening and please be safe.